everyone. Welcome to the Bringing Reading Back podcast. This is season two, Shit You'd Read and Lit, where we analyze the novels that are typically featured in one's high school English classes. Join us as we share personal anecdotes, ask philosophical questions, and dive deep into plot and characters. Heads up, episodes will be full of spoilers and potentially feature a bit of foul language. I hope you're excited as we are to share some of the classics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bringing Reading Back. I'm Tori, with my two co-hosts. Hey, I'm Danielle. And Jade. And what book are we talking about tonight? We are discussing I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. This book was published in 1969, I think by the very well-known Maya Angelou. She is a amazing woman. She's an activist. She is a staple for black women as just a uh, really inspiring story of someone who has taken her situation and grown beyond that and made it. She is a singer, dancer, uh, poet, poet <laughs> writer. Yeah. Um, she's given speeches for former presidents. I guess I should say not necessarily speeches, but she's delivered her poetry live. She's done a lot. And this is her autobiography of her early life, that is. Before we get into character breakdowns, um, we are skipping the 30-second synopses this week. Um, just because, once again, this book is a little bit... We don't want to make light of the material, so we are going to skip that and save it for another book. But our characters are, once again, probably going to overlap a lot. Um, it seems to be how things just kind of have to go with these books. So, Yeah, but these especially, um, because they are books that are about very heavy topics, we really we want to talk about our characters. We want to spend more time delving into the themes of the book instead of just joking around and trying to outrun a clock. With all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our characters. So our first character, our main character, is Maya. Um, her given name is Marguerite, and she is the author. The book is told from her story. This is her autobiography. When does she start going by Maya? It's not till like the end of the book. She's right. So her brother starts well, calling. I think it's pretty early. Yeah. So her name is Marguerite, but her brother, whenever he's little, calls her Mai. Because he can't yeah, say. I think she pretty much always goes by Maya. Yeah. He calls okay. her. Yeah, he calls her Mai. And then eventually Maya. Um, her mother and her father call her Riddy. And her her grandmother or her mama calls her sister constantly. Or Marguerite. Um, it's mostly just sister. So that's where she gets her name from. She also is called um, Mary at one point. For just a chapter. Um, when she's working as a maid. In training um, for a white woman who lives on the other side of town. and uh, For a shitty white woman. Yes. Yes. A completely horrible person who, first of all, they start calling her Margaret. They can't say Marguerite. So they call her Margaret. And they're like, Margaret's too long. We're going to call you Mary. And it's like. We're just going to give you a whole new name. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. That's so messed up. Yeah. It's. Ugh. It's one thing. you know that that white lady knows it. Yes. Too. Because, yes. oh yeah. Well, and she did yeah. the same thing for her other maid too. She her name was Hallelujah, but she just called her Glory because it was easier to yell Glory, come help me with this thing, than it was to. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, but also because you know, you know, she knows it's wrong. Oh yeah, and I think it's just I'm getting on a soapbox early on in this one, guys. But I feel like in this, it's not just her shortening the name because it's easier to say. She knows she's doing it, and she does it to dehumanize the people who work for her to further create them as her property and not human beings with names that she should be learning. Well, who, like, in what other situation would that ever be okay? Right? Like, you just give the person a new name, not a nickname. Like, it's not a nickname. Well, and it would have been one thing if Marguerite had said, hey, I know my name is really hard to say. You can call me this. There's a difference. But even at the very end, and I feel like it's just, so what it really reminds me of is 
the friend of the horrible white lady in the help. Hilly. So, yeah, Hilly. Hilly's best friend, I think it's Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of her because she doesn't really believe it. She kind of sees how it's problematic and yet does it anyways because the other white ladies around her, she doesn't want to come off as she's standing up for her maids or anything like that, mm-hmm. which I feel like is exactly what this white lady does because at the very end, she even gets mad and yells at her friend because she's like, her name is Margaret. Or yeah. Margaret. Yeah. Because she knew that that's why she probably broke her dish oh yeah she's very much aware that she was being a horrible person so even at the end she uses her right like right name Mm -hmm. i'm already angry i'm only on the first kit we're only like nine minutes in and i'm already angry um yeah and i feel like that was not even like we were just talking about her name we're not even talking about her as a character at all or her as her as a person yeah Uh, but what initially stands out about maya is the fact that she is set up as a contrast to her peers so she and bailey don't really fit in anywhere they go so when they come down to stamps just because of the fact that their situation is with mama so they're already set up in a kind of elevated state and they're able to like read a lot and so they're learning a lot they're both getting really good with words and don't necessarily use the southern slang that everyone else around them does and then when they move to st louis in california they're like country people <laughs> they just seem to be a contrast there seems to be a contrast with maya and bailey no matter what the setting with those around them and they both are really especially maya seem really interested in furthering their academic development or even just exploring words because they love it or Maya loves words, loves the written word, loves books, loves poetry, etc. So that's one big part of her character. Yeah, for sure. She loves kind of getting away from from these hard times uh, because this is Depression era Arkansas during this mm-hmm. time. Um, I don't. We said this in the pre pod, but they are in Arkansas. So this is where like the bulk of our story does take place in that that small Arkansas town. I want to say it's really close to Little Rock. But I'm not 100% certain. It's near Texarkana. There's uh, only one state in the Bible. Do you know what it is? Ooh, do tell. What? Arkansas. Because Noah looked off the ark and saw. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was good. I'll give you that one. (laughs) That was good. I'm sitting here like... We've now lost 50% of our listeners. No. <laughs> no. Hey, if they're still here one. after all of my singing last week, they're not going anywhere. Last week? What are you freaking talking about? Like, every podcast well, ever. It was every really bad last week, though. That's, you're not wrong. It is every podcast. I feel like a lot of it, like, you all don't get to hear the bulk of this because a lot of it is me singing to Jaden Tori. I, I mean, I cut out a lot. <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> It is pretty bad. It, it's pretty horrible. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I'm glad you guys love me still. Let's delve a little bit more into Marguerite. So I wouldn't say she was a chatty child to begin with. Like she was very much a I'll answer when spoken to. Like she was a very polite child. Mom made sure of that. But I wouldn't say she was necessarily like a ch- like a child who talked a lot per se. Um, but that definitely went away after her trip to St. Louis. Um and the subsequent events that followed. I think something that also sets Maya apart in this book specifically is that she's very aware of social so, so, social situations. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's going to come back with a lot of the themes that we discussed, but her and her brother just have to grow up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and have to have to be aware of things. So, like, even when they were super young, at the store, um, like a white sheriff came and was like, "Better hide your," essentially said, "Better hide the all men who are black, because mm-hmm. there's going to be the KKK coming around tonight, because a, a woman was assaulted by a black man." And so they they were just kind of like warning them, like, "No matter who you are, if you're a black man, hide." And they hid their uncle Willie in the potatoes mm-hmm. at like a very young age. 
And so that's never something that you like think of. It's never something that like I would say most white children had to deal with growing up super quick and seeing too much of the world before for their time. Well, and even their initial trip to visit their like to go live with their grandparents and their grandma and stamps, like they were alone for most of the train journey. Like from Arizona to Arkansas, they were by themselves. I mean that too, those poor kids have have experienced a lot in their short lifetimes, which is really sad. I definitely think that having to grow up as a young age is not exclusive to any race. I definitely know that white children do have to grow up, especially when they're put in really shitty situations. But there's really no comparison to having to face a racial, the discrimination based on race. Like, sure, yeah, I I know people who've had to grow up young, but the fact that you have to grow up because, because like, an entire, your situation is based, fuck, I don't even know how to say it, but. Entirely on prejudice. Yeah. There's really no comparison. Like, we, there's nothing that we can set up against that that matches the kind of experience that black children have when they realize those racial differences, especially in that time, and then have to react accordingly. The fact that their uncle had zero to do with whatever situation was going on, but that it was probably best that they hide him simply because he was a black man, so only matched that tiny descriptor, there's nothing that we can kind of experience similar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, guys, like, we're coming at this as three white women trying to do our best to talk about the black experience, especially in the South, um, and especially during segregation. Same thing as whenever we went through the help. We have not had these experiences. Um, so we're just trying to do the best that we can in and relaying the author's words and kind of describing what she had to go through and what she had to experience. So, What I always find interesting in autobiographies is that like, what's happening in the story is from their perspective, right? Even though it's 100% true to them, it might not be true in general, which is why it's like an unreliable narrator. But it's also just like such a different perspective that you get. And I feel like it gives you the true experience in general if that was like that was super convoluted so it might not be like 100% to the nail like what happened but it gives you the true lived experience I guess is what I'm trying to say so um for instance whenever they took mama took Maya to the dentist and the dentist said I'm not gonna touch I'm not gonna touch your teeth I will not help people of color she stepped out and her Mama had to talk to him, and she's like, I imagined that she threatened him and said, like, we could, you know, we could put you in the grave, and you need to leave town and never do dentistry again. And, like, what really happened is that she called up interest on a loan that he had paid her and used that money to pay a different dentist. But, like, the experience of her wanting to create, like, an alternative reality where they had the power in the situation is just so informative on, like, what they're true lived experience was in that situation yeah you said that beautifully jade so while we're talking about bad things that have happened to maya during her lifetime i think we should probably go ahead and touch on what happens to her in st louis um when she goes to visit her mother's family whenever maya is visiting is living with her mother um her mother moved she was staying with her grandfather she and her brother were staying with their their grandparents um but eventually her mother moves them into a home with her. Living in the home is a man by the name of Mr. Freeman. And Mr. Freeman is Freeman or Friedman. I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but Freeman. You don't really ever find out what Mr. Freeman does. As far as I know, like he seems to stay at home for the most part, especially in the evenings. Whenever, um, But whenever Vivian goes out to work for the night, um, he's there with the children. He seems to be there throughout the day. So pretty early on, She's having nightmares and sleeps in the bed with her her mother. And one morning, her mother has to get up and go to work early, so she just leaves her in the bed. During this time, her mother's boyfriend uh, molests her, and there's just a lot of fondling, but then he immediately grabs a glass of water from the bathroom and throws it onto the bed and tells her, oh, 
you pee the bed and just immediately gaslights gaslights her and this experience that she's just had and she's confused and she's hurt and so that that continues until later he finally rapes her um while there's no one in the home and so that experience we talked about it in the prepod um where they find like her her bloodied underwear under the bed that experience causes her to stop speaking because he threatens her and tells her that if she tells every or anyone um he's going to kill her brother bailey and so with that and with just the fact that a single word from her caused this man to be killed i mean justifiably so he raped a child but her uncles and the people who were on their side from the police force um just happen to find his body after his the trial for raping this little girl like that's just a lot for an eight-year-old to take in she's eight when this happens so again like tori was saying another instance of having to grow up way too fast and like in this moment she deals with am i sinful will god still love me kind of the same things themes that we were talking about whenever we were talking about um hassan's son and the kite runner who after he's been abused and you know sexually abused he's asking if he's dirty and if he's still if he'll still even go to heaven which is again he was a small child during this too like it's it's a horrifying concept that they're they're having these thoughts well and it's it's doubly difficult because she's dealing with the after effects of that like what happened to her those questions but then also like thinking that she's the reason he's dead yeah and that like her voice was what killed him and like she eventually kind of comes out of that but it's like it's not just like one issue it's like a compounding problem Mm -hmm. also for just a second can we talk about the fact that whenever the trial was happening the judge was like or the lawyer was mocking her and be like, oh, he raped you, but you don't know he was, what he was wearing? Yeah, I can't imagine disclosing something like that and going through to a trial when back then. I mean, we barely believe victims now. Right, exactly. That's And that's another crazy thing, too. Like, we barely believe victims now, especially when those women are people of color or those victims in general are people of color. Completely understandably, to deal with this trauma, she just stops talking because she feels like her voice, because she's told, which is another important thing to remember or to touch on, is that up until, you know, she was injured from the assault, she kind of was felt close to Mr. Freeman after he molests her twice, a couple times, she feels close to him because she's never had an adult in her life who actually showed her like physical love. And so she's like, oh, he's hugging me and I felt safe and secure. And she's not understanding what's happening. And so to have these conflicting feelings of why doesn't he want to do that anymore? Or why was it these few times? And then then when it escalates to him raping her, she has to deal with that. And so she's like, he didn't really love me or now I am tainted, stuff like that. So she's dealing with that on top of, you know, the physical repercussions of what has happened, um, the effects physically. Well, then she just stops talking altogether after she finds out he's been killed because she thinks she is the reason he's killed. And I don't think it explicitly says this in the book, but Maya, I've seen talk about this situation in interviews, and I think she stopped talking for like five years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you aren't given an explicit timeline in the book, so. She she's wow. ta- she talks to Bailey. That's it. She, you know, yeah. in, she loves her brother. Um, she really has a connection with Bailey, and so he's she's really he's really the only person she talks to. I mean, eventually she does start yeah. talking to Mrs. Flowers and Louise. Um, yes, after Mrs. Flowers encourages her to read aloud because she loves reading so much. And I think Mrs. Flowers recognizes this. She recognizes her love for literature. And so she uses that to kind of um, springboard her recovery and make her understand that the human voice is a powerful thing. And you shouldn't lose that just because you're scared of what might happen. Just use it in a responsible way, in a way that makes you proud. And so 
her reading, her reciting literature does that for her. And really, this book does highlight Maya as kind of a champion for the Black woman for overcoming these terrible atrocities she's had to face in her life, and even the struggles of young motherhood, of trying to become educated, of she never really had, you know, she did feel like stamps was her home, but she never really had deep roots. I mean, she moved around how many times as a child? But then despite that, despite being a single young teenage mother, you know, she does ultimately make it and is extremely successful and works alongside famous activists and uh, sells countless poems and books and makes an album, you know, music and stuff like that. So, which she doesn't go into. She kind of stops the book at her becoming comfortable with motherhood. And I think that's kind of beautiful too. Like that is her achievement. She feels like that's where she wants the book to end. She wants it to end with her connecting with her baby, her new baby. We've talked about it a little bit so far. Do you guys want to go ahead and jump into Bailey? So Bailey is a year older than Maya. Um, he's the one who gives her her name. And really, he's he's her best friend. He's her confidant. He's her protector. He's the one that she spends 99% of her time with. And they really, they truly enjoy each other's company. They have a really good relationship for the most part. Um, whenever he gets a little bit older, he doesn't want to talk to his sister as much. He gets a little moody. But really, he's he's a little bit of a, a mischievous child. He's the one who makes her start laughing in the middle of church one day. He's the one who sneaks pickles and candies from the store uh, whenever their grandmother isn't looking. He is just, he's a little bit of a, of a troublemaker, but in a good way. Um, he also seems to be very charming. Yeah. yeah. He is very charming. He definitely knows his audience. And so in stamps, he's surrounded by you know, these country people. And so they don't understand sarcasm, which he uses frequently. They don't understand his jokes. They don't, I mean, he kind of talks over the people at in stamps. So, yeah, he definitely knows he's the smartest person in the room or one of the smartest people in the room. Yeah. And he uses that to his advantage. And I think Maya does as well, but mama continuously, or I guess, not just Mama, but Maya multiple times brings up in the book that she has been described as tender-hearted, and which Bailey would not be. Right. So they do have these similarities. Like they both are smart. They both know they're smart, but they exude that, exhibit that in different ways. Yeah, and also as Bailey gets a little bit older, um, Bailey is also the one that whenever they get in trouble, so like whenever they get beaten, they get spanked after they're incident at the church he's the one who says just keep wailing loudly and they'll they'll feel sorry for you yeah he's a little mischievous i think he also kind of deals with a little sexual misconduct at the very least sexual molestation if i must say yeah let's talk about this so at first he's kind of perpetrating it a little bit i wouldn't say perpetrating because there's not a whole lot that happens um in the beginning, because he has all these girls come to his tent, and they they play mama and papa. Basically, it's just we're gonna lay here and move around a little bit, but nothing ever actually happens. It's like dry humping. Yeah, basically, it, it really is. Yeah, and that it's something the Mormon Church does very well. <laughs> it's soaking, Probably. but there's no penetration. Soaking without the penetration. If you're curious about what soaking is, you can go Google that. Or um, don't. It's fine. Or don't. If you do Google it, use an incognito browser. You'll be better mm-hmm. off. Um, until he finally brings in a girl named Joyce, who's like, what, four or five years older than he is? She's probably like, eight, uh, I mean, is she like 16 or 18 or something? She's like 15 or 16, I want to say. Like, he, whenever he meets her, I think he's 10 and she's 14. Oh. So like, Annika and Padme level, but... Also, he's um, nine and she's fourteen. <laughs> I only know that because I have Will or Weird Al Yankovic in my head going. Even though he's nine and she's fourteen. Anyway, he meets a girl named Joyce who's older than he is and has uh, been with a lot of a lot of young men. Um, and she, whenever she goes into the tent, she basically asks him, "Well, why are your pants still on?" 
aren't you going to take your pants off? And he's like, oh, no, you can just pull up your dress. And then she takes off her underwear and basically introduces him to uh, what sex actually is, not just their dry humping that he's been experiencing thus far. Um, And this comes after Maya's rape. And so she's like, she hears their conversation and like freaks out a little bit. But then Joyce is threatens, basically threatens to beat her if she doesn't go away. It's a very uncomfortable scene. All in all, that's that's the best word I have for it. It's just very, very uncomfortable. But he falls madly in love with Joyce, and then she leaves to run off with with another young man who she met at the store. So it's just a lot. <laughs> he doesn't in this moment, though, seem to think it's a negative. Right. He seems to think it was more consensual because he was, that was his whole thing. of Like, oh, we're going to play mama and papa, and experience the sex the sexual world or the sexual world as they knew it he is very sad though whenever she leaves and doesn't talk for quite some time i mean i guess that's up to debate or interpretation she joyce just definitely had experience in being the 10 or 11 year old that he was Mm -hmm. he didn't really understand what was happening oh i I agree it's way too young but oh oh yeah for sure I mean, they both were children, and so she had, I mean, if we move over to Joyce, like, she had experience that also could constitute sexual assault, I'm sure, too, so. Oh, um, absolutely. It's just a perpetuating cycle when children are introduced to adult activities. Right. Real quick, I just remembered something else that pissed me off about Maya's assault. Whenever she's at the hospital, and then during the trial one of the nurses i think says it to her the first time and then some of the other women in the courtroom make the comment to her that well at least the worst is over for you now about like having sex for the first time and genuinely like i had to put the book down whenever i got to that like that was just so sickening to me like well so the way i took it is no one can ever hurt you again the way that you've been hurt it's yeah now just be empowered like you can never feel the hurt that you're hurting again. I mean, and I get that's what I how I would take it. As in, well, a couple of them were like, "You're a woman now." Okay, like, yeah, like so now you know as much as we know. Yeah, yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's, that's not good. That's not okay. Some fucked up shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you're eight. <laughs> yeah, you're eight years old. Do we need to talk much about the other people? Nah. I don't think so. I think the big thing about Mama is that. She never really answers a direct question unless it's about religion. She is a very religious woman. So much the point of misinterpretation. Uh, yeah. But she has a good heart. Uh, freaking pissed me off when she got on to Maya about saying, by the way, I literally want to be like, you ignorant piece of crap. Like, why are you going to, I mean, like, she got spanked, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you are legit beating your child because she's using an a saying right correctly right uh you're a jerk <laughs> no absolutely. that was the only real time that i was put off by mama the Same. rest i enjoyed but when she did that i was like that you're messed up yeah that was infuriating honestly i was like really of all things that's why you're angry. and not even giving your child a chance to explain like this is a term that's used like you just immediately jump into blasphemy and then talking about how in the end times, babes will be blaspheming and cursing. And it's just like... It just goes to show, like, even the best of people can use religion uh, to a detriment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great way of saying it. Like, you may have the best intentions, you may have the best heart, and usually you may fall into the category of good person. Mm-hmm. But you might want to check yourself when you're doing something right? solely based on religious fervor Mm -hmm. and also pulling out single sentences without any context and using those as a as a reason to switch your children you know not so hot one thing about mama that we didn't find out that i was really curious like i i really wanted to know more we never find out how mama's story ends um and i get that because it's about like obviously the book is about maya but mama played such a big role in her life like i'm curious to know how much longer she lived after taking uh, Bailey and Maya to California. And we never really get to hear that. Like, she just kind of disappears. 
after that point. And again, this is through Maya's eyes. So obviously she's talking about the experiences that she had at that time, not, you know, what's going on in stamps while she's in, in San Francisco. But I wish so we would have learned a little sadly, bit Sadly, sadly, you have to um, consider the fact that maybe Maya didn't even really keep up with it. Yeah. I mean, this is the 19, probably 40s and 50s at this time mm-hmm. as they're getting older, like, well, and the connections between California and the South. That's true. Maybe aren't so good. Like, she might not have heard, had the whole story on what happened to her her grandma. Like, we don't, who knows? That's just speculation, of course. Right. Well, and also, if they're moving, too, like, she probably wouldn't have had the same address to send them anything. Like, if Willie had sent them, Uncle Willie had sent a letter or something. Anybody in the community, really. So, that's a good point. That's a good point. I just wanted to know more about Mama. She's definitely an interesting character. I was always curious, like, why she would send them back to live with their family. And we can only, like, speculate, I think, but... Uncertainty of if they're safe where they are, I guess. I mean... That's kind of what I was thinking. But you're sending them to a place where you also don't know the certainty of their safety. I mean, she sends them with her son, who is a piece of shit. Yeah. And he takes her to freaking Mexico and acts like he's going to traffic her, it sounds like. (laughs) I mean, he's a piece of crap. Like, why are you sending, especially when you care so much for them, you're sending them away again. And the last time you sent them away, like, your granddaughter was, yeah, I don't don't know. She didn't send them away that time, though, right? He just, like, took them? Well, yeah, he came and got them. I'm sure she could have put up a fight, but maybe not. But also he was her golden boy. But also she's taking care of her. Not necessarily taking care of, but she also has to worry about her adult son, too, that stays with her. So I'm sure it will be hard. And when you raise a kid, you're not looking to raise their kid. So I get that, too. Mm -hmm. It's his responsibility. Let him take them. So I definitely get the arguments on both sides. For sure. But I think that wraps up our characters. We touched touch base on a few more, um, but really that's the staples, and they're all seen through Maya's eyes, and so just as long as we flesh, fleshed out Maya, uh, that's really the importance of this book. Alright, so with characters being pretty well wrapped up, we've touched on some of these themes already, but we're going to go ahead and jump right into them. So, the big themes of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. So first and foremost, in big capital letters at the very top of the page, is you racism. Cannot ignore. You cannot yeah, ignore. you can. Bl- it's so blatant. You cannot ignore it. Racism. So yeah, let's kind of let's break that down a little bit. So there are the obvious uh, things that are happening in stamps. There's the physical divide of the white side of town and the black side of town, um, and those two sides typically don't mix. Um, I think. Maya mentions that she hadn't really seen many white people um, when she was growing up. She, she like, thought, thought they, they were, were men. not real. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she thought they weren't real. Um, Why? Except for the the children who uh, basically were the poor white trash children who lived poor white trash. Yes, which I, I giggled a little more than I should have. Do you like the diction? Like the, I guess diction. You would say the. Of the words of this book, I like it. <laughs> oh yeah, I do too. But whenever these children would come up, they weren't they weren't well mannered, um, and they would just run around the store and they called Mama by her first name, not referring to her as Mrs. Henderson or anything like that. She would pinch the children, the little poor white trash children who would run around the store. She would pinch them partially out of you know stop being a brat and partially just to see if their skin was real. You good, bro? I know. I know. I know. Oh, my God. You want me to check? What was your dog looking at? I ordered Chinese food. Oh, <laughs> very exciting. I think that the theme of racism is just liter like, is throughout the whole book. Like, there's not one story that is told that isn't at least slightly 
trying to point out the racism that they experienced. And maybe not, like, overtly, but, like, it's in everything. From the fact of, like, yeah, which side of the road they were on to the dentist not helping them or, um, like, the job that she wanted. Um, yeah. It's, like, it's there. It's just, like, always there. Well, and I don't think, like, because because of who she is, I don't think she could tell a story that wasn't completely steeped in her experience with racism, like, because that impacted every facet of her life. Well, I mean, you say, like, and I know you probably didn't mean it, like, because of who she is, but, like, I don't think anybody at this, in from from the same place that she grew up in, um, who had lived through what she'd lived through, could tell a story and not have racism be a part of it. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I meant, like, her identity and... No, um, you're good. As a woman of color. Sorry, I was distracted from the, the cap. No, you're fine. I just, I just like, want to clarify. Like, I think anybody who came from that, like, telling a story, we would be, like, racist. Like, yes. <laughs> not her, but, like, the people that she had to interact with. So. Yes, exactly that. You put it much more eloquently. I was, again, I was distracted by a, by a husband and a cat. So my words were kind no, of hitting, good. hitting the board. So we could talk about racism all day. Do you want to go ahead and move on to how we exhausted kind of what we wanted to say? Are there any other principles you want to bring up? Anything else you want to talk about? Or do you want to move on to the next topic? Yeah, I think we can go ahead. We did. I mean, I think it's so essential to the story, so essential to her experience as a black woman that, you know, it's it was scattered throughout our whole discussion yeah. because it would be impossible. Like Jade said, no matter who you were, if you were in that situation, it would be impossible that that you didn't experience that. Right. It's so universal. So one of the themes we have is success for a black woman. So what do we want to say along those lines? I wasn't the one who wrote it, so I'm not sure that was a Tory thing. Okay. Just, again, highlighting that Maya Angelou is a, a person that many, any woman could look up to, but I think it's important to have those role models for black women to look to and i think even how she one of the last chapters she ends it basically saying like success for the black woman was not expected it wasn't thing that was just taken for granted it was doable she's making it she's carving out her future despite everything that she has going against her and so um, I think it's important. And I mean, other successful, amazing black women look up to her and, and, and point to her as kind of staples of their lives, of, of their role models. I know uh, like Oprah talks about the importance that she had on her life and stuff like that. So there is a quote that I highlighted that goes exactly with what you're saying, Tori. And I think it was, it was the one I think you were talking about. It's right at the end. The fact that a black woman emerges a formidable character is often met with amazement, distaste, and even belligerence. It is seldom accepted as an inevitable outcome of the struggle won by survivors and deserves respect, if not enthusiastic acceptance. I think is the quote that you were you were talking about, for sure. So I did think that the religious experience described was super interesting because they all seem to be, in her upbringing, um, like pretty religious. Like they went to church and Mama obviously, like, was about her religious beliefs, um, but then they all, like, shit on the traveling reverend, because he was kind of, like, like, he was portrayed as very greedy. Was it just her perception, or did people actually criticize him? Yes. I think it was just her, her and Mm -hmm. Bailey. Ah, question. Always trying to show up when they were eating dinner. I think they just didn't like him, um... I think the interaction that was had whenever he was there and the woman whose name I can't recall um, was getting into his message um, and telling him I to I think she it. also did that with their regular preacher. Did she? Okay. But yeah, it was really interesting how religion influenced every aspect of daily life. And um, something I put on here, there are so many different congregations in that tiny community. Like, we're never told how many people are in in stamps in general and specifically on like their side of stamps but i counted like four or five different churches represented 
Uh, yeah, so it talks about when they do events, multiple churches are always there. Mm-hmm. I'm just very curious because, like, they had a Baptist church. They had the Episcopal, Christian Episcopal, or Methodist Episcopal Church. Like, all these different denominations are represented. I was like, this is really interesting. Like, I just wanted to sit down. I wanted a list of how, like, their beliefs on every little thing. I'm curious to know if they differed in any way, with the exception of the fact that there was one church that was more uh, charismatic, and there was a lot more of, like, they made a lot more noise than the other congregations did. I think I wrote down something about it. Hang on, let me find it. Yeah, here's the quote. Um... Members of the hoity-toity Mount Zion Baptist Church mingled with the intellectual members of the African Methodist Episcopal and African Methodist Episcopal Zion and the plain working people of the Christian Methodist Episcopal. These gatherings provided one time in the year when all those good village people associated with the followers of the Church of God in Christ. The latter were looked upon with some suspicion because they were so loud and raucous in their um, services. Their explanation that the good books say make a joyful noise unto the Lord and be exceedingly glad, did not in the least minimize the con- er, the condensation of their fellow Christians. Their church was far from the others, but they could be heard on Sunday, a half mile away, singing and dancing until they sometimes fell down in a dead faint. Members of the other churches wondered if the Holy Rollers were going to heaven after all their shouting. The suggestion was that they were having their heaven right here on earth. The condensation? Condensation. Um, like condescending. Condescension. I'm sorry, not condensation. <laughs> <laughs> the condescension. Either or. Condescension, Whatever. condensation. I would, it's a big piece of text. I haven't read it aloud in a long time. Words are hard. Yeah, good quote. And I, I'm the one with the acting degree. <laughs> it's fine. Words are hard. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting because you got like, so already you have the Mount Zion Baptists. You have the African Methodist Episcopals. The African Methodist Episcopal Zion. Church of God and Christ. The Christian Methodist Episcopal. And then, uh, let me find them. Kojic. What? Kojic. Kojic, yeah. Yes. Which is Pentecostal. Yes. So it's just interesting to me, like, all the different, all of their different congregations that seem very different, but they're really more... Again, I like. I want to see their beliefs. I want to see like a list of what they all believed and like the differences in their church because something tells me they were really, really similar, especially to be in that small of an area, with the exception of uh, the Church of God in Christ, because they were a little more, a little louder in their ceremonies, in their uh, their worships, worshiping services. Why can't I talk mm-hmm. today? Why are words so hard? <laughs> so when I think that that condescension is condensation seen even in Maya's experience she notices it when Sister Monroe does her have this very animated outburst in church then the next week's message is talking about how the Pharisees act out to kind of show their faith. And Maya mentions, I doubt anyone else caught the message, especially those that it was directed towards. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting, uh, like, and you, you're saying, like, they don't, like, the condon, condensation, the condescension, um, like, and, like, not knowing that it was meant towards them. I found it really interesting that she was talking, that she brought up answering a question not asked. So if you ask somebody, hey, where are you going? They'll answer, or like, hey, where have you been? They'll answer where they're going. And if you don't know that that's what they're doing, you're going to think that they've answered your question. But if you know that that's what they're doing, you'll like understand that what they're not telling you is private. And so in not answering, they're still answering in some sort of way, which I just thought tied in nicely to you know not being aware and I thought that was a super interesting distinction and then I was overthinking like do I do people do that to me just in general I definitely know that I answer questions people don't ask if I don't want to tell you the answer I'll give you an answer to a similar question mm-hmm. I definitely do it and I'm like I'm sure people do it to me right because we all have stuff but 
I thought it was interesting. But then I'm also like, I'm pretty well an open book. Um, while we're talking about religious experience in this community, I think there's also something that Maya highlighted. <laughs> something that Maya highlighted. Um, she was talking about at the revival, the preacher was talking about how about charity and about how the people who were without anything without anything, the poor and the downtrodden, would get their reward. And she made a comment about how the people of the church see like had this concept that they would be the only ones going to the land of milk and honey and that the wicked white man had already had his earthly reward. And I just thought it was kind of interesting because I think like it goes back to that concept of oppression and you find it all throughout, you find it through multiple religions across time and history. It's just something that's really interesting. And it definitely like speaks to their oppression and how they're going through horrible, unspeakable things. Um, And the same concept that like an apocalypse is written to bring hope to people who are going through a difficult time. So I just thought that was interesting. I thought well, that was like, a thing. It's that that was often also a message like taught specifically to people who um were in, mm-hmm. oppressed or in this case, um, you know, in the South were just severely mistreated was like your rewards in heaven. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I think that that would be a common element that you would find in the stories of the experience of black individuals in the South during this time. Even the spirituals that were sung by black workers in the fields when they were kept as slaves, and then after when they were just working in the fields, you know, as as sharecroppers or what not, they would sing these spirituals that had these beautiful meanings gleaned from the biblical texts that perfectly fit their situation, what they were going through. Like you said, pointing out the milk and honey and crossing over the Jordan and being delivered, just like the Israelites, it seems like they really connect with those kinds of stories, biblical stories. And so I think that that would be a common thing that we would hear from individuals who did experience that. But it's also used to criticize and critique religion as a whole. So if they weren't just so okay with overlooking their plight on this earth because they're looking towards their reward in the next life, you know, what's to come in the the heavenly realm. Uh, Maybe they wouldn't have taken the crap that they were dealt. (laughs) So kind of the opiate of the masses. Mm Mm-hmm. Tori coming through with the philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you can't even say philosophy, guys. So, Condensation, philosophy. So on that note, do we have our favorite quotes? There is actually one last thing I wanted to point out on the religious side. Yeah. So a couple times, well, I mean, we did touch on this, but... I actually don't remember the quote, so never mind. Let's just go to favorite quotes. (laughs) I don't remember. Okay, so my favorite quote is, um, I would say like middle end. I listen to the audiobooks. I don't have a page number, and I don't even have a like a number to like of where it was at. But the needs of a society determine its ethics, and in the Black American ghettos, the hero is. Sorry. The man who is offered only the crumbs from his country's table, but by ingenuity and courage is able to take for himself a Lucullin feast? Probably mispronounced. L-U-C-U-L-L-A-N. But, tomato, tomato. The first, the first portion like is, that. like, what I liked the most. Yeah, um, for sure. That was a good one. I heard it, and I was like, oh, that's it? Um... But I don't know, just just like the idea that ethics are fluctuating, um, which I think everyone should should be able to tell, but we don't like often highlight. Um, and, you know, a society determines what's okay and what isn't. And if they need one thing, then ethics will change to fit that. Um, yep. It's definitely so. a fluid concept. And I don't think a lot of people realize or accept that Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that is a point, um, although we don't want to justify or make excuses for ignorance or evils, but I think that that can be used to kind of understand or humanize past transgressions. Um, You know, ethics and morals are ever-changing. Well, it's like, who's going to blame the the man who steals to feed his children? Like, it's wrong, sure, but, like, you're not going to be like, oh, morally, you're a sinner and you're going to da-da-da-da, you know? Ethics. They're a big old gray area. Okay, so this is either Mrs. Flowers or Maya's mom. I can't remember which one it was that said my favorite quote, but here we go. Okay. She said, I must always be intolerant of ignorance, but understanding of illiteracy, that some people unable to go to school were more educated and even more intelligent than college professors. She encouraged me to listen carefully to what country people called mother wit, that in those homely sayings was couched the collective wisdom of generations. So this is page 99 and 100 in my version of the book. I think this is just such a wise thing to say, especially to a young person who's at that stage where they begin noticing or pointing out the shortcomings of the adults around you. So especially when you feel like you are evolving from your roots or from what's around you, it's easy to kind of fluff that off or shake that off as just something that's ignorant or not worth your time. But just how she says the collective wisdom of generation generations are housed in those sayings that you've just become accustomed to so you overlook them but they do hold this deep generational group wisdom this experience and so don't overlook what you've what you think might not be important or don't take for granted those you know little sayings there's also something to be said about like oral tradition oh for sure like the oldest way of passing down information and i wish that i would have listened more to those who are no longer with us yeah absolutely that got me right in the feels Anyway, yeah, Tori, I love that. That was really good. I have two, and one makes me really sad, and I didn't, I don't want to put it as a favorite quote. I think it was just a quote that, like, really stood out to me and, like, kind of broke my heart, mm-hmm. and then there was another, um... Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. Really Tori just throws a cat for it to come right back. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Tori has two oh, kittens, so for sorry. anybody who doesn't know, and they are... She's I just here, can't right? keep them out of my life. office now. It's okay. They've discovered that there's a missing window pane in one of my French doors, and I just can't freaking keep them out. <laughs> so I'm really sorry that <laughs> these that this audio is going to be fucked. You are totally fine. Mine is trying to break the door down right now, so just wait till they get tall enough that they can hit handles. That's real fun. Okay, so anyway, the quote that makes me sad is from really early on in the book, um... I So I was doing mine through Kindle, um, and then if you highlight things, you can go back and look at your highlights on Goodreads. Um, if you're not on Goodreads, you should totally get on Goodreads, but it tells you like what percentage of the book. So this was at 16% of the book, and it said, um, I couldn't understand whites and where they got the right to spend money so lavishly. Of course, I knew God was white too, but no one could make me be- could have made me believe that he was prejudiced. And that just broke my heart because this concept of whitewashing God, and I'm, I'm going to try not to get on a soapbox because we're almost done, guys, but, like, this concept of whitewashing God is just, as white people, we've taken so much away from the BIPOC community, and the fact that even at this point, 
in the early 1900 or yeah, early 1900s, even God is considered to be white. Just pisses me off beyond belief. Like there's no even today there if you tell people that Jesus isn't white, people get super like there's no way that he's not. If people white. are still saying that, they're you know, fucking stupid. Yes, because he's Middle Eastern. I would agree with you on that. Like he's, yeah, like right. if you but really people, actually still believe that, you're so stupid. It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but just the fact that even this was impressed upon these children, and on these people, that, and like you could argue the concept that God has no race. Because of, you know, Trinity and whatever. But Jesus was represented as a Middle Eastern man. that Like, the Holy Spirit and, like, you know, God in the flesh and all that. But, like, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. He wasn't white. <laughs> like, it just, I don't know. It hurt me to think that this was something that these children knew as just, and just accepted as part of fact. That their savior didn't look like them. Even though now we know and we, we've established throughout most of the religious community that he wasn't a white man. I don't know. That just really made me angry and I wanted to bring it up. Well, if a Jesus existed, it would be a Middle Eastern man because that's where he was said to be born in Nazareth or wherever, depending on which birth story you subscribe to. Somewhere in the Middle East, (laughs) not Anglo-Saxon at all. Anyway, that just, it hacked me off, and now I'm hyped up, and we're going to be ending this, and it's late at night, and I'm going to be all hyped up, and my poor husband is going to hear me go on a rant. So that was the quote that I was talking about earlier when I said I had one more thing to talk about religion. It was the God would, was white comment. Yeah. Okay, so I'm glad we were on the same page, because I, I tracked that, and like, again, I had to close the book and sit quietly for a moment, because I was like, hmm. I, was I just angry. wish I knew why she thought that. Yeah, me too. Like, it was said so simply as if it were a fact, not, Mm -hmm. like, nothing else to it. It was just, like, that was established. So, anyway, that hacked me off. But the quote that I did like happened right before your quote, Tori, Uh, whenever she's, when Ramaya is with Mrs. Flowers. And it's, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with the shades of deeper meaning. And I just really like that because I think that's something that she tries to do throughout this book um, is she really tries to take her words and infuse them with with the setting and the time and just her experience. Um, and as someone with an acting background, that just like jumps out to me too. I'm like, meaning, lots of deeper meaning in things. Um, but yeah, I really like that. I'm still hyped up about the the whole God being white thing. So that's going to be my, my soapbox for the night. But yeah, with that... I'm good. So I also watched the made-for-TV movie that came out in, like, the 70s. Mm. It was a good watch. Pretty good. They just portrayed Maya a little bit different. I didn't get the tenderness, the tenderheartedness that she really pushed in the book. But it really was a, a good rendition and definitely worth the watch. Where did you find it? What streaming platform? Uh, YouTube. Oh, cool. Oh, wait. Yeah. That's something you put in the chat, wasn't it? I, I think. So. Maybe. I think so. You put you put a song in the chat. I think you... Oh, yes. Yeah. I did put a... It's definitely worth a listen. This song that the boy giving the speech sings during the graduation. Oh, Lift Every Voice and Sing? Yes. It is what they called the black national anthem and so i did send the girls a rendition of that and it was last year's nfl i'm not sure what team i know it was at arrowhead stadium but maybe the chiefs i don't know i think it was just the nfl put that video out so that was pretty cool yeah and like I would definitely encourage listeners, um, if you haven't ever heard that song before, to go look it up because it is a very beautiful song. What song was it? Did Um, we say the name of it? And really just lift every voice and sing. Yeah, definitely go check that out because it is, it's truly a a beautiful song. Well, I was definitely trying to make a point when I brought up the made for TV movie thing and I don't remember what it is, so. Oh no, I'm sorry. They didn't portray Maya as tenderhearted. Yeah, there was definitely something else, but it doesn't matter. I'm I'll sorry, watch that I too. You. No, 
I feel like I couldn't even remember while I was talking, so mm-hmm. that's fine. Oh. <laughs> See, in that case, I'm glad I distracted you then, because you went on a different different tangent. Yeah. Well, it definitely doesn't even go into her, uh, like, it stops at the graduation. It doesn't even go into her becoming oh. a mother or anything like that. And she is the one that starts seeing that singing that song instead of the boy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Who was in it? Any well-known? I have no idea. In the 70s. That's fair. That's, fair. That's completely valid. <laughs> um, All right. Join us next week for... The Great Gatsby. So we're going to be tackling something else. Uh, we were in like the 30s and 40s um, for this book, but we're going back to the Roaring Twenties for The Great and Gatsby. it's a somewhat more lighthearted book than the last three reads so a little bit a little bit lighter it's much more lighthearted (laughs) it's much more lighthearted i mean there's some murder and like some manslaughter and some suicide but like it's it's much more lighthearted and with that we hope you join us next week either give that book a listen or a read and we will cover um a pre-pod and all that good stuff if you have any suggestions, if you want to share sh- share some books with us that you would like to see us talk about on the podcast, or you just want to give us some critiques, compliments, right? Compliments. If you want to send us Starbucks gift cards, welcome. You can email bringingreadingbackpodcast at gmail.com. Please, if you are able, whatever platform you're listening on, please like, rate, share, whatever. It's greatly appreciated. And until next time, BRB for now. BRB. BRB. BRB.